Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio. You know, every first Monday, we get to chat with Mike Guardia. Mike is Mike is on our show every first Monday, but um, he often talks about his books because he's an award-winning author, a military historian, and also a U.S. Army veteran. He's also named Author of the Year in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. I think he's up to 25 books, so he's always telling stories from his books. Um, his latest ones are The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II, and Coyote Recon, The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J.D. Vanderpool. Telling you, you're going to want to read his books if you haven't already. Go to his website, MikeGuardia.com. Obviously, get him on Amazon, all those great places. Uh, but today, he's going to give, well, me definitely a history lesson on the Revolutionary War because it's airing on July 3rd. So we're getting into the spirit of uh, Independence Day. And um, I'm sure a lot, a lot of you listening in know a lot more than me, but I'm really glad because Mike is also a history, a history teacher. So welcome back, Mike. How are you? Hey, Lisa, I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Well, I'm excited to have a history lesson today. I know we're normally talking about, you know, soldiers and aircraft and, you know, all of that cool stuff in your books. But um, we need to kind of go back into our history of America of actually becoming independent. And as you know, I grew up in different countries. And um, so I have some I have some you got some explaining to do for me, Mike. Help, help. Um, okay. But I, I want to get started with this um, in regards to, so, you know, we've got the 4th of July, and, and this is when we, we became independent. But when you look at the Revolutionary War, it seems to have stretched on for a while. So were we independent before, the, the you know, England said, okay, we acknowledge this or not? Yeah, so we were independent in the sense that we had declared it. You know, I mean, we had the whole convention where we where we signed and we worded out the Declaration of Independence, and uh, you know, the uh, the whole thing was uh, was thrown together at Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1776. That was mm -hmm. when we officially declared independence for ourselves. Um, you know, the thing is, is that we can declare it all we want. It doesn't really become official per se until the mother country formally recognizes it uh but for all intents and purposes uh yeah we were we were a declared independent nation in 1776 uh british finally said enough in 1781 and in 1783 they formally recognized our independence but uh you know we as a country uh formally we recognize our date of independence as as july 4th 1776 well, they took a long time to recognize that. I yeah, mean, is yeah, it they, just because of communication and, and boats and stuff like that? Or was it just like they didn't they they just, you know, wanted to be slow about it? Well, no, they really just didn't want the American colonies to be independent. You know, it uh, and it had been a long time brewing um, because, mm -hmm. you know, for uh, for most of the existence of the American colonies, the relationship that they had with England was, was uh, what we can best describe as salutary neglect. And it's like, you know, hey, we're going to uh, recognize that the people who 
live in the American colonies are subjects of the British crown, but we pretty much let them do whatever they want. You know, they, uh, they can print their own money, they can conduct uh, trade with other nations. Uh, you know, the, the only thing that we ask really at the end of the day is that they recognize Britain as, as uh, truly being their sovereign. And, you know, that relationship uh, worked very well for much of the colony's existence. You know, we, we, we considered ourselves British only in a nominal sense, but we were calling uh, our own shots as to what we did, you know, as far as conducting trade, as far as, you know, governing the aspects of our day-to-day -day lives. And the thing that really uh, changed that dynamic, oddly enough, was the French and Indian War, which, mm. uh, which, is, uh, which is the name that we apply here in North America to what uh, is in a broader and in, in a much broader sense known as the Seven Years War. And that was where the British and the French were fighting each other and uh, particularly ground zero of the, of, the, um, of the Seven Years War was in the American colonies because the French had colonies here as well. And uh, because the fighting was getting so intense on the American frontier, you know, you had a, you, you, you pretty much had a carousel of British troops who were making their way to the American continent to fight the French contingent. Well, wars cost a lot of money. So mm -hmm. when the war was over in 1763 and Britain was declared the winner, they said, okay, well, gosh, this war really cost us a lot of money. So how are we going to recoup the royal bank accounts as they are? Uh, well, hey, we're just going to get the American colonists to pay for it. You know, we're going to say, hey, uh, we're going to uh, start taxing you guys because I mean, uh, come on, we did fight a seven-year war here, and uh, we want you to shoulder some of the burden. Well, thing is, is that the American colonies had never been taxed to that point, and you know, they were probably willing to tolerate it to a point. But the thing is, is that a lot of the uh, a lot of the a lot of the taxes and a lot of the policies that came out throughout the 1760s and into the early 1770s uh, were by every measure that the American colonists were putting to it were very repressive and were trampling of the, were, were trampling of the colonial rights. Right. One of the biggest battle cries that they had was no taxation without representation. That was one of right. the very first pushbacks. They said, hey, you know, we're we have been enjoying this relationship of salutary neglect forever and a day. And uh, now suddenly you want to tax us. Well, hey, we're not even represented in parliament. So why are you going to tax us when we don't even have a voice in what happens in the government? You know, not that taxation with representation is all that much better, but, you know, still yeah. they felt like they wanted to have a voice. And um, among, the many, uh, uh, among the many tax acts that they uh, put towards the colonists, you know, you had the Stamp Act, you had the Tea Act. Yeah, I was going to ask that the, the, the Stamp Act was like, right. when I was re researching this, they're like, the Stamp Act. I'm like, what? They're going to get mad about stamps, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so what it was is, is they, they were these stamps that were attached to any paper product that was printed and circulated throughout the colony. So it applied to newspapers, it applied to stationary documents, wow. pretty much anything that you could have a paper-based product uh, attached to would be taxed accordingly. And, you know, then not only did you have a lot of these, uh, a lot of these taxes that were coming down, but you also had, uh, you also had uh, very unpopular policies, such as the Quartering Act, which meant that which meant that American colonists had to house British troops in their home if any of the local garrisons didn't have room for them. 
Well, this Ooh. is a this is a total invasion of privacy, and it has no no respect for any any type of public pro or excuse me any type of private property. Uh, but you know, also the uh, the typical British soldier who was serving in the American colonies at that point, he wasn't your he wasn't your professional volunteer soldier who you know likely came from a well to do mm -hmm. family and was uh, you know was was well trained and well disciplined to begin with. You know, the typical soldiers serving in uh, serving in the American contingent at that time were criminals who had gone before a magistrate and the judge said, OK, you can go to the gallows or you you can join the army and you know, serve out the rest of your sentence uh, in the uh, wilderness of the American frontier. Wow. And, you know, these uh, are certainly not the kind of people that I want to be housing in my home. Right. So you ha yeah, so you have all of these uh, all of these repressive acts that are slowly building to a crescendo. And you think the situation's gonna be diffused after the Boston massacre, when you know when uh, uh, British troops opened fire on uh, some rowdy American protesters in, in, in front of the customs house in Boston. So uh, some of those uh, acts were repealed and uh, some of the taxes were even repealed at that point. But then uh, fast forward to 1773, and you have the Tea Act, which you know the tea market in Britain at that point mm -hmm. was uh, was was suffering from market oversaturation, and uh, it was really starting to affect the it was really starting to affect the prices on um, you know on the international tea market. So uh, what uh, what the British business tycoons and the British Parliament, for that matter decided to do was, hey, well, we're gonna take all of the surplus tea, we're gonna sell it to the American colonists at all, all of these bargain basement prices, and then we're going to tax them on it. You know, so, so you know, this underhanded way uh, of, uh, of, of trying to undercut the tea surplus really rubs mm -hmm. Americans the wrong way. Yeah, especially since uh, especially since not only are they losing money, all of the tea merchants here are are losing money. They're not they're getting taxed on top of it. They're like, uh, you know, hey, this is uh, this is pretty much your this is pretty much your um, your seventeen seventies. It's pretty much your seventeen seventies version of a Bernie Madoff scheme. So they, of course, start to fight back, and one of the uh, one of the most uh, one of the most prominent examples of them rebelling against this uh this this horrible um uh horrible tea cartel tactic that uh that's going on is is they uh they respond with the boston tea party and that's when uh protesters members of the sons of liberty which was Sam, Sam Adams' protest group. They disguised themselves as Native Americans. They board a few merchant ships in Boston Harbor, and uh, they dump all of the uh, they dump all of the tea bags right over the uh, right over the railings into the harbor. Well, that costs British merchants and and uh, by default the British government a lot of money. So they reintroduce a lot of the a lot of the um, oppressive acts that they had previously repealed and then they established a new set of laws called the intolerable acts and that's oh, where okay yeah and uh, that's where they were restricting limits on your freedom of speech that's where they were restricting limits on your freedom of assembly and that point it really became the point of no return for the american revolution you know uh, it was the following year that you had the first continental congress where uh, where they all got together 
you know, delegates from all, all of the all of the colonies at that point. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, well, here at the First Continental Congress, here's what we're going to do. We are going to have a 100% boycott on all, all British-made goods. Uh, we're going to hit them where we know it's going to hurt the most, and that's in the pocketbook. Right. We're also going to uh, we're also going to create what's called a Continental Association, which is going to enforce which is mm-hmm. going to enforce the boycott. So if we catch any merchants in any of the 13 colonies who are breaking the boycott, then we're going to be a breaking your kneecaps. Oh. <laughs> and and uh, and not only that, they also declared the intolerable acts null and void. And wow. uh, it was short. It was shortly thereafter that they uh, that they established the Continental Army. They started calling for local militias. And then in 1775, it's when you had Lexington and Concord, the shot heard around the world, where you know the where the British were uh, trying to uh, take control of an armory right outside of Boston. And uh, on the march to and on the march back, you know you had uh, American militiamen who were who were lining the sides of the roads, picking off these British troops one by one. As they were marching in, uh, as they were marching in these single file columns back to Boston. Wow, that's a, an amazing story. Even like how they did that with even the the Boston Tea Party, when yeah. they you know dressed up like, hey, we're we're you know Indians doing this, and that part it's smart, but I don't like it for the Indians, you know, right. uh, you know for for the indigenous people are like, hey, don't don't put us there, but you know when you put it all together in this way and actually do know more than I thought like now that I you know it's like oh yeah 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 you know um but as you put it together you painted this really this this bubbling picture of heat right of mm-hmm. everyone's getting a little angry and angry like we came here to get away we wanted religious freedom right we came here for right. religious freedom and when you're talking about okay these intolerable acts and all of this it and privacy and now I kind of really understand the backbone of um, what we vote for and mm-hmm. and really what Americans say, hey, no, we want our privacy. We don't want this. We want this. Correct. We don't want that. So it's kind of our backbone of the country. All these like this is our value system as a mm-hmm. country, as a nation. That's right. But I also see some of these some of these terms are actually used even today. I think even when we look at what happened at the Capitol building you know, that was some craziness that kind of looked like what happened back in, you know, the Revolutionary War times, like, you know, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to overthrow the Capitol, which obviously is not, you know, the way to go. Right. But that that's this thing. I, I mean, it's people want to fight over this now politically, and, and that's not what we're here to talk about. But I get it a little bit better in that these are some of these values, sets of values, and then isn't it Thomas Jefferson who pretty much wrote everything? And and from what right. I was understand too, part of this was there was also part of the grumblings where like the westward expansion also kind of tied into this a little bit, right? Is people wanted to kind of move outside of the colonies. There were things mm-hmm. were starting to change from what they initially set up in the colonies. Right. Ah, okay, cool. And he did good. I mean. He stayed up day and night. And you know what it's like to stay up day and night and write something on a deadline. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, but think about it. You're writing it for a country, mm-hmm. you know? I exactly. mean, I wonder what it felt like to be them writing this. And then have you have to put a wig on, you mm-hmm. know, and go, I mean, come on, why the wigs? Um, <laughs> and then go in and you're representing an entire country. 
you know, yeah. that's got to have some weight on the shoulders. I wonder if they've got any writings of that, like, dude, I just wrote this and it got adopted in, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, yeah. so that part of it is is pretty crazy. But so the so really became militia army. So anybody who was anti, even though so it's like British against British on new soil. Yet at the same time, we also had the Native Americans that we kind of stomped over, you know, and weren't there other cultures that were on on the, you know, on the continent as well? Um, not just British that were part of this? Or is it right. mostly well, British on British? Well, when we're talking about the American Revolution, it uh, for the most part was British on British. But uh, the thing was, is that um, at some point, when we were fighting against the British, we actually enlisted the help of the French. And we had a number of French advisors who were attaches of the Continental Army. And uh, then later on in the war, you had the French, you know, pretty much who were fighting side by side alongside us. And then you also had a, you also ha had a few Prussian advisors who were who, who were taking all of their taking all of their classical warfare expertise. That they had gained on the European continent, and they were parceling out that knowledge to the Continental Army. One of the most notable, if not the most notable, was a guy by the name of Baron von Steuben, and you know he was a uh, he was a Prussian soldier who, you know, really uh, really schooled the Americans in how to do close order drill and how to uh, you know how to maneuver as a as a cohesive unit. Wow. So this keeps going. This is, mm -hmm. but so how, and by the way, the shot heard around the world, I thought that was a baseball term as well. <laughs> what was, well, I mean, was, wasn't there a baseball? I know, sorry, everybody, but it, you know, I know I'm American, but I'm still learning. I think we'll always <laughs> keep learning, but isn't there a baseball thing with that or no? I really well, I have no clue. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess uh, you could say the shot heard around the world was when Babe Ruth called yeah. his shot. I think it was at at the nineteen thirty two World Series where you know he pointed to the left center field bleachers and then hit a home run that you know, which you know went exactly in the direction that he intended it to. Oh wow! See, but that's American history. Yeah, I mean, of course it is. I mean, come on, baseball is American, so it's okay right. for me to say this. Bring that up, you know. Yeah, okay, so we sure. have these different cultures. We have French hanging out with us. So doesn't that tie into Canada too? Like, because I find it interesting that they, they're celebrating July 1st as their Canada Day. We have ours on mm -hmm. the 4th. Right. Like, were we friendly at that time or not? Well, well Canada was... Because then we had very... the Battle of 1812. Right. So Canada was still a dominion of the British government at this point. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't necessarily involved in the revolution as much. Um, but where we really see Canada start to become more involved was in the War of 1812, particularly during uh, the, some of the disastrous opening rounds of that war that we had. Uh, you know, when we talk about the War of 1812, you know, the big flashpoint that comes to a lot of our minds is that when we tried to invade Canada, I mean, that was a disaster for American forces. We, uh, we backed off of that pretty quickly because it ended so poorly for us. You know, um, when, as a matter of fact, 
one of the things we can point to as a, a proverbial turning point in that War of 1812, actually, it it's ironic when you think about it because it wasn't really a land battle per se that started to turn the tides in our favor. It was a naval battle, but it wasn't mm. a naval battle that happened on the high seas. And you have to remember the Royal Navy was still the biggest and baddest kid on the block. It was a naval battle that happened in the Great Lakes. I mean, you had on Lake Amazing. Erie, yeah, you had on Lake Erie, a lot of these untested American ships who were going toe-to-toe against some of the best man of wars in, in the British fleet. And uh, we, we completely decimated them at, uh, at, at ranges that as far as naval warfare is concerned, we're, we're really point blank range. You know, I mean, we were firing cannonballs at each other at, at ranges of less than a hundred yards. And, uh, and these were pretty big ships. And, for us to uh, for us to get that close and to the score and to score that decisive of a victory over mm. what, what 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 was then the greatest navy on the planet and for it to happen on a lake, I mean that was like a, a huge boost to morale for a lot of us. This is you know that's why I kind of I, I know we're staring off of the Revolutionary War, but to me it's all kind of connected in this interesting way. And you know so we've been to Lake Erie. We went on the Pennsylvania side. You can go through Ohio too, right? So that lake keeps going. Mm-hmm. We went out on the water and Harry, um, Harry's a victory. Yeah. Um, he, he, yeah, we went to one of his monuments and man, he was a crazy dude. Um, mm-hmm. And we were learning how there, and I, I know we talked about this before we started recording how, you know, they were sinking ships. They, I mean, there were all these tactics they were pulling that were still kind of new. And we went out on that water and it's kind of interesting because there was some, you know, there was, lighthouses out there and always thought why would you need a lighthouse on a lake well yes you do and (laughs) we do and when you're out there you actually do feel like you're out on the ocean Mm -hmm. that lake that lake can be pretty choppy um it it was pretty it was you could be out you just not you could be out in the middle of nowhere and think if somebody just blindfolded you and put you out there you wouldn't know if you were on a lake or the ocean you know what i mean if you didn't know where you were going mm. and they just dropped you yeah. off there, you wouldn't know. And it's when you think about the wars being fought there and then even the way the weather changes there. I mean, that some of the, the you know, tide coming in freezes. And you live up in those northern areas, man. You guys are oh, like, yeah. you guys are all got like thick skin out there. I don't know how you do it, but <laughs> yeah. um, I've tried. <laughs> you know, we do our little stints and we go, okay, we come running back south with our tail between the legs, you know, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, that's a fascinating battle. And then, so, okay, I know I'm going ahead again, but then the battle of 18, not the battle of 1812, and then the battle of New Orleans, what were the British doing there? If they were already like told to go home from the Revolutionary War, if I got my dates mixed now, like well, what so were they, because the Scottish were there too. Like what, like well, they were supposed well, to get out. <laughs> yeah, well, so we had the end of the American Revolution. We'll call that 1781. And, uh, you know, then we, we had a pretty tumultuous relationship with Britain following the end of that war. You know, throughout the 1790s, we would have these little spats here and there, and we would have these tenuous peace agreements or whatnot. Uh, but right around the turn of the century, coming into the 1800s, that's when things start to get a little bit hectic again. 
And uh, the Royal Navy is now harassing some of our ships on the high seas. Well, there's, uh, there's quite, a few, quite a few incidents, high profile incidents, uh, one of them involving the USS Chesapeake uh, uh, versus the HMS Leopard. And uh, you know, the HMS Leopard captures what is at that point the pride of the American fleet. Not only that, you have, uh, you, have, you have the Royal Navy, they're capturing American merchant ships on the high seas and they are impressing those sailors. They're like forcibly conscripting them into the Royal Navy. So this starts happening enough. And then finally, uh, war is declared against Britain. So Britain, of course, sends their troops over here. Again, you know, it, it, it's, 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 essentially, it's essentially the Revolutionary War Part Two. And oh. yeah, and so throughout the War of 1812, you know, which actually goes all the way until 1816, uh, so right around the tail end of the War of 1812, we're talking like uh, late 1815, early 1816, uh, the culminating battle is, uh, is, at the, is at the Battle of New Orleans. And what they were doing at that point was, you know, just trying to uh, essentially trying to flank the former American colonies and strategically isolate certain parts of the colonies to make it easier to split our forces. Uh, the only thing that they didn't count on was the what, what was the leadership of Old Hickory himself, Andrew Jackson, and uh, mm. the Battle of New Orleans was uh, an incredible victory for us, you know, because we well there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of tactical um, uh, a lot of uh, tactical pieces of ingenuity that we had put forward on the field. One of the one of which was putting our artillery forward of our main forces. And uh, you know to be to be outmaneuvered as as uh, as badly as the British were, um, you know it, it was uh, it wasn't long before you know people could see okay this was a this was an American route we had we had pretty much routed the British forces under General Packingham at that point, and mm. yeah it was and it, it was. It was a decisive victory, but it was almost kind of a pyrrhic victory because peace negotiations had already started at that point, but the information was slow to make its way to the frontline forces. But even still, uh, that was, in a lot of ways, it was an effective bargaining chip on our part because we could say, okay, well, yeah, I mean, you're ready to talk about peace. Well, God, look what just happened to your forces at New Orleans. And that was one of the uh, things that solidified the Treaty of Ghent, which was in 1816. And that Treaty of Ghent ended the War of 1812. But you know, the lessons that we both took away from that war were so long lasting, we both realized, you know, hey, the war wasn't really even necessary to begin with. And uh, you know, for the uh for the betterment of the Western Hemisphere, we had better get along well with each other. And you know, the, uh, the Treaty of Ghent set those terms of peace that have lasted for the better part of 200 years. And even today, after the Treaty of Ghent, you know, the British are the one reliable ally that we Americans still have in the world. Okay, so this is, that's, so this was almost like the end of the Revolutionary War then, in battle, the Battle of New Orleans, the Treaty of Ghent kind of really said, okay, now we're really done. Because yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of like that even, Human relationships are like that. All right, we're done with this fight. We're putting it to bed. We've called a truce. And a year later, like brothers will fight <laughs> each other or sisters or, you know, loved ones. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you hey, know. do you remember the time when you did? Blah, yeah, blah, blah. they'll oh, use yeah. that card. Yeah. That card yeah. you're supposed to like, okay, 
it's in the past, we've done it, we know better. And then it, you know, you, yeah, people get resourceful even in their own arguments, right? And so mm, that right. that will happen in military and, and in battles. So, okay, now I'm going, so the Revolutionary War really just kept stretching out. So we're still just, we're going to duke it out to the end. Right. But I thought it was interesting about, I know I keep talking to you about this battle because I just, I'm, I just find it really fascinating how, you know, Native Americans were coming in from Kentucky and Tennessee and the Scottish were mm -hmm. coming, the privateers were coming right. in. Now, mm -hmm. okay, so this, they, everybody got together and said, that's enough of that. And it was Andrew Jackson, even though he was so bad to the Native Americans. Oh, yeah. He is the one who really made it all work. And he, he like, had to go and be polite to him. So he kind of had to own up and say, you know, and didn't he have dysentery, as I recall, something like that? He he was not well during yeah, he, that. Yeah, he uh, he 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 was frequently sick. <laughs> Poor guy. Well, maybe it is his attitude, but he really did a good job on that one. But okay, so now I have to go backwards to go forwards because now the Louisiana Purchase mm -hmm. was purchased prior to this war. Correct. And so that's a whole other weird thing that. Louisiana Purchase, like some, it's it, like that whole, like we've talked about Louisiana no man's land. At one point, the Spanish had it, you know, the Italians, French. I mean, everybody started like owning it. And then all of a sudden, it was back to being American, right? And nobody told American that's where it became no man's land. And no one ruled it. There was no law and order. And everybody, I think everybody had a good time, but you know what I mean? But it was because they didn't get the information. And I think it was waylaid in in England. That's some crazy stuff. Now I have to go back on that. But the Louisiana Purchase, that's that's a weird thing how that really was a big part of our country now, even the makeup. And the Louisiana Purchase is not just the state of Louisiana, like how how big it is, you know? Mm -hmm. But it was Louisiana back then. Right. So yeah. So does did that come into play during the Battle of 1812 at all, at all? Because it went so far up. Well, yeah, it was because uh, for the past, I don't know, for the past dozen years or so at that point, Louisiana and New Orleans were, were, uh, were by every measure in American territory. Um, so that the fact that we now own that land and it had ceased to be formally French, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was going to be a contested piece of territory uh, until the War of 1812 was finally resolved. Um, but you know, it was uh, it was a tremendous windfall for us because that added so much more territory to um, to. Our country at that point and you know then it was shortly after we acquired the louisiana purchase and we sent lewis and clark out to do their expedition there you know to try to map out what was beyond the mississippi and missouri rivers and uh you know not only that it also you know, it also played a role in uh formalizing our relations with the spaniards and later the mexicans because Right around 1819, you had the Adams Onus Treaty, which uh, which is which is how we ended up getting Spanish Florida. But it also 
formally defined where the Louisiana purchase ended and where the and where the Spanish Mexican territory began. So, yeah, because we had that amorphous landmass out there that was called Louisiana, but, you know, part three of that Adams Onus Treaty was, was an agreement between the U.S. and Spain that says, okay, of all of this territory that you call the Louisiana Purchase, here's where it ends, and here's where we define the border of Spanish Mexico. And it wasn't but a few years later, after they formally defined that border, that Mexico was in its own revolutionary war against Spain. And, uh, you know, then, of course, you had you had American settlers who were settling in Spanish Tejas. And that's right. Yep. And then that led to the Texas Revolution. Right. And and actually, when you go up in no man's land in Louisiana and that no man's land really ended in 1821. So it was 1891 to 1821, 1891, yeah, to 1821, where it was. So this is kind of interesting, like how all of this it's just it's fast it's just like this giant timeline of things that happen across america right right and then but i want to go back even to 1812 because the war of 1812 and the british that was happening in washington state like big time and here we were like on these little islands we went on whidbey island and we have um actual you know national park units and everything with this they have a french camp an english camp there was Italian camps, there were British camps. And so everyone was fighting and they, they managed to kind of, it was, there was fighting times and then there were non-fighting times. And then someone killed a pig and then they fought because <laughs> there was a pig that was running around the camps and then someone killed the pig and that was it. It was on. <laughs> there was some story with that. I'm, I'm not telling it properly, but yeah. And, and I think I, I don't know if it was a British or an Italian that did it. And then it, you know, went crazy. So, you know, when we think about the war of 1812, like how far from the revolutionary war time, how far we'd stretched out across the country already and having these camps. And yet, so it seems like they were coming in from the other side to get us too, like England, you know, with uh, what's his name, Sir Francis Drake mm -hmm. coming through, try to claim California. Yeah. The new Al Al Albion, I think it is that he called it, and yeah, Sir Francis Drake and his golden hiney is like I always call him, <laughs> but he he ran ashore and he was going to claim it for the queen. That didn't work, and he was fighting with the Spanish. So all this stuff was happening all at the same time. It's kind of crazy when you think about it, and how we were fighting. You know, all the the, yeah. the British how the British were fighting with the Spanish and they would do it at sea and just bomb each other and go right up. That's some crazy stuff, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So when you go from the revolutionary war, we got the 12, 1812, got, you know, all these other little wars, not that they're little, but you know what I mean? So once we get independence of our country, then it was like, all right, now you know how to fight. You've got to keep fighting for it. You can't stop now. It was like right. it's kind of like that was the beginning of all the wars that that America has gone through there. Yeah, wow. I mean, at least until at least until the War of eighteen twelve. You know, I mean that that's what pretty much put an end to that era of what we can the only British. call persistent conflict. Yeah, and then yeah. the Civil War comes. Right. That had to be. I mean, because even that wasn't that. I mean, it was a like. 100 years not even 100 years later that's right, right. Mm -hmm. 
So some people are already having memories of that. Do you think? Do you think the same people were there during the Revolutionary War? Some could have still been alive, but elder, right? Oh yeah, no, no, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Some of them, uh, some of them were still alive at that point. I mean, they were very old, of course, and you know maybe yeah. they were they were they were approaching the end of their lives. But yeah, it uh, it was. It was something that I think on some level, a lot of us knew was coming, especially uh, since, you know, even if you go back to the, you know, 18 teens and 1820s, you had various people talking about secession. Um, but yeah, we, I think on some level, everybody knew that there were only so many compromises you can make uh, between whether or not we were going to remain split between slave states and free states or whether it was going to be a, a an entirely free nation, you know, and uh, the the founding fathers they they knew that it was going to be uh, they knew that it was going to be a very sticky uh, it was going to be a very sticky issue one that they would uh, they would not easily resolve probably within their lifetimes. But they said to themselves on some level, I think, okay, well, this may be a uh, this may be a uh, What's the word I'm looking for? This may be a centrifugal okay. force against Ooh. the nation, and it might rip us apart. But let's try and put some things in place now that can keep that from happening. And uh, hopefully, as time goes on, cooler heads will prevail. Because Ben Franklin had already started an abolitionist society uh, on the continent mm -hmm. by the time the Constitutional Convention came around. So I think, yeah, so I think what they were telling themselves was, hey, this is only going to end one of two ways. It's going to be a nation that is permanently divided between slave and free, and the slave states are going to have to recognize that they're going to be in the minority, or slavery is just going to go away. It's either going to go away quietly, or it's going to go away with a lot of bloodshed. But those are the only uh, two options that we foresee. It's crazy because it, it's like another revolution, right? Uh -huh. When you think of it. It was just, you know, it was like, okay, here's the descendants of, you know, the Revolutionary War period. Here's, you know, and now we're going to, like, fight against each other. Mm -hmm. Now that we've got independence, let's kill each other. And, you know, the slavery part was, you know, it, it's it's horrific. And it's happened around the world, and it's unfortunate. But I, I want to also touch on, at that time, we had the 13 colonies, and then that changed. And we hit, became mm -hmm. states. So there were colonies and then the territories out west, right? So we didn't have, yeah. is that how it worked? Like the territories weren't in the east, they were only in the west? Yeah, well, the um, unorganized and even the organized territories were out west. And, you know, we were still trying to define the borders of uh, where they started and where they ended. Um, you know, Kansas and Nebraska just being one examples there. Um, but yeah, as they, uh, as new territories were acquired and people started settling them and these places started applying for statehood, you know, then you had the uh, nagging question of, okay, well, are these new states going to be slave? Are they going to be free? Mm. Are we going to try and geographically isolate them to one particular uh, part of a map or, or what? And, you know, that was leading to things like the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1850 and, uh, you know, every other compromise that people could think of to try and maintain that delicate balance between uh, slave states and free states. And the mm -hmm. slave states actually took uh, more of a panicked view of it because they thought, okay, well, we know that there's a lot of people in the country who, uh, um, well, you know, we'll have a, uh, well, there are a lot of people in the country who want 
slavery abolished. So we don't want them to get too big of a voice in government because uh, if they outnumber us in Congress and in the Senate, they'll, uh, you know, they'll take it away from us and we won't even have a say in the matter because, you know, uh, the majority will rule at the end of the day. So, yeah, it it was a balancing act that I don't think anyone could have found a long-term solution for other than, you know, hey, we're going to go to war over this and figure out what's what. Wow. And then it's it's wild now when you think, well, they should have brought Thomas Paine back. I mean, he, he wrote the common sense, the, the, the booklet, common sense. And I think that helped Jefferson maybe mm-hmm. with his declaration. I thought Thomas Paine was pretty cool. But then he went to jail, didn't he? He got he ended up in jail and then out of jail. Or... But um, when when you think about, OK, now we had we ended up with Alaska. Then we took over Hawaii. And and I do mean it that way. That's just mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, and then Puerto Rico. So when you were explaining what it was like, you know, as our country, like before independence and how we're like, okay, well, you know, this is our new land. And now Britain, you know, we're, we're going to fight for with Britain because we're British. And then mm-hmm. we get taxed for it and all that, you know, and all those other rules which suck, you know, we don't want to be taxed and all of that. What about Puerto Rico? I mean, we end up with Puerto Rico and they're not a state, but yet they are part of us. You know what I mean? It, isn't it kind of similar for them, how they misfeel? Not, I'm not trying to be political, but it's, it's an interesting setup, let's put it that way, how they're part of America, but they're not in a way, they're not allowed to vote, right? Or are they? If they're here in the mainland, they can, right? Well, if they have residency inside of a state, yeah, yeah, they can. But but Puerto Rico, uh, we actually acquired them as a commonwealth after the Spanish-American War. And uh, for a a U.S. commonwealth, it's it's a really weird legal dynamic if you have a commonwealth, because uh, if you go to Puerto Rico, it is U.S. territory. All the people who live in Puerto Rico and who were born there, they are U.S. citizens, um, you know, they, uh, but yet they can't vote in presidential elections, and neither can the folks who live in Guam, um, and they have the rights of, they have all other legal rights afforded to them by virtue of being American citizens. It's a commonwealth, yeah, but it's not a state, so I think you can call a commonwealth the, I, I think, the most logical analogy I can give is it's it it's almost like how we were with the British 250 years ago. That that's that's uh, why I was saying when you were telling me I was like that's kind of like what Puerto Rico was like. Right. Is like except, now. Yeah. It, except our relationship with Puerto Rico isn't really antagonistic. Um, you know, no, there are there yeah. there are some political parties in Puerto Rico who want independence, and it's come up for vote every few years but but most yeah but most Puerto Ricans uh have uh you know have gone on the record to say no we want to stay part of the U.S. you know yeah it's interesting with that and you hear that every election time and then and there's people you know it's almost like they're a territory right like you're saying Uh like a commonwealth and we have virgin islands and and those kind of and sometimes those are from wars right Mm -hmm. and um so like our national park service we have all these sites and in, in places like America, Samoa, um, those places. 
but then at the same time so puerto rico you can't you, you can you can't do these things so you can get an american passport there you go there's something so that comes up okay so washington dc and i was like i got i got all confused even when we were driving and getting lost there thank you that was fun mm. okay. um yeah um so dc they cannot vote right if you live in washington dc and so it, it is or it isn't part of, like it, the district of columbia oh, so well, that's still kind of a yeah what is going because they want to become they want they aren't they trying to change too and then everyone i know well, that lives there says no it's not going to ever happen well it, 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 there's some people who have wanted dc to become a state but if you live in D.C. proper, you can still vote in elections. Um, uh, D.C. doesn't have any representation in the federal government, though. Oh, OK. Yeah, I mean, because like, it, you know, um, what is it? Uh, this last election, they were running um, a lot of the a lot of the exit polls for uh, the polling stations in D.C. And yeah, there was like, you know, for like the past, I don't know, 70 years or so, um, D.C. has voted overwhelmingly Democratic. Yeah. Mm. Huh. This is fascinating. So, Mike, you've basically given us a, the, the, the overview of the history of America. You did good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I think I know you made sense. Well, because we all read different pieces. It's hard to put it into one picture. But it is really interesting going from the Revolutionary War and how it stretched out, you know, so it makes more mm -hmm. sense to me. All, you know, when you put things into a context like that, it just you can understand how, OK, this this the ripple effect of one thing to the next. And it mm -hmm. just makes sense of. You know, I, I heard this term today in an interview about how. History doesn't just you know, you don't just turn the chapter. History stacks itself. Yeah. And it's always connected with stacks. And that's exactly what you just proved today to me. And, and you gave me a good, you know, reminder lesson of our American history. And I'm sure we all forget our American history here and there, you know. I think yeah. in election times when people get all angry with each other's political beliefs and start arguing it, I'm hoping that we read back in these, you know, stories and the story of our country to remember what the values were really for and about maybe be a little nicer you know mm -hmm. and uh, come together you know instead of split but you know it's doing what it's doing but it is interesting mm -hmm. looking backwards and then looking at today it's kind of i see all these similarity lines going "Ooh, i don't want that i don't want to have a tea party again i like yeah. tea i like mm -hmm. my tea but um yeah very interesting very interesting so um i think you should you know you do so well in teaching history and i know you teach you have a master's in teaching in history right I do. Yep. I, I think then you maybe you should write a book or two. <laughs> I'm just messing okay. with you. Twenty-five <laughs> books. It's twenty-five, right? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. So what's next? What's what's the next book? Okay. Well, see, uh, the two projects in the hopper right now are one on the combat engineers in Vietnam, and uh, then another one on the spy war in Bosnia. I can't wait for the one on the spy war of Bosnia. Because yeah, it just felt it feels very connected to my childhood, you know, mm -hmm. by watching what was happening there. And so you've done a lot of different wars. Would you ever go and write something from like the 17, 1800s? Or oh, do you sure. want to? You would? Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. I hope you do. 
because it's cool because it, you always tell the stories of the people and mm-hmm. when going back to the revolutionary war is there anybody that you think you know you you would want to shine the spotlight on from that that time era that era or that you know main that war whichever one you want to talk about you know the ripple fre- effect of it all that you would say mm-hmm. was you know outstanding or just really needs to have the light shone on them yeah i would probably say um and there are a lot of them, but I would probably uh, focus my attention on a guy named Francis Marion. They called him the Swamp Fox, and uh, he fought down in the Carolinas. And uh, this guy was a master of guerrilla warfare, um, you know, engaging in a guerrilla war against the British contingent down in the Carolinas. And uh, they called him the Swamp Fox because that's where, you know, he operated out of. You know, he uh, you know would be in and out of the swamps and he would be uh, fighting You'd be fighting the British using irregular tactics and, uh, you know, not try to give them an opportunity to present an enemy with whom they could close with through maneuver because, you know, he was just in and out of the shadows. So uh, I and, you know, most historians of the war, they know Francis Marion, but I think he, he probably deserves a, a wider, wider mainstream audience and, uh, wow. you know, and something that would, you know, just something that, uh something that would make his story known to the masses. Yeah, I, I, I don't even think about it all the way down into South Carolina. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> was it a call? Was it was it South Carolina then? Or was it the yeah, Carolinas? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was mostly South Carolina. Wow. There's gators in those swamps. I've uh-huh. gone to those swamps. <laughs> yeah. And copperheads and cottonmouths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Man, that's amazing. Amazing what people go through during war, you know, man. Mm -hmm. And now we have to tell people not to, you know, play with the bison inside the or the buffalo. Because the bison or buffalo, I'm going to get in trouble um, inside of Yellowstone. Don't take your picture next to the alligator. Like, duh. Yeah, You know, (laughs) back in the day, people were fighting alongside gators and snakes. You know, amazing. Well, we can't wait for the next books and we can't wait for next uh, next month. We're going to be talking about communication in war, right? So mm-hmm. does that include like Morse code and all of that? Flags, as I was learning the other day, um, just how communication was was done and what we were talking about before with uh, Normandy Beach, how they were able to communicate when they landed. That's right. Very cool. Everyone, MikeGuardia.com is the website. He's here every first Monday. You can keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. I appreciate the history lesson. Thank you. Anytime.